I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. Alrighty guys, episode three. That means that we are two behind us so far of the Purple Patch podcast and so far so good. Thank you so much for your positive reviews that you've given us and a lot of the notes, it means a lot to know that people are listening. And of course, I would like more people to listen. So a call to action first, if you could, and treat it as a personal favor. If you could leave positive reviews on Apple Podcasts, if you are enjoying the show, if you could share it with your friends, it's really, really appreciated. I'd love to build this into hopefully an important and valuable voice in the performance discussions that we have across sport and of course across life. Today, it actually gets real. You don't have to just deal with me, myself and I this week. We have our very first guest. And who else could we have on but Sami Inkinen? Sami was such an important part of Purple Patch. Early in our journey, we had a partnership as he went on his quest to build Trulia. And he took that all the way to, of course, going public. At the same time, trying to compete and excel in triathlons. And that methodology that we created, the journey, the experimentation that we went through to try and weave a recipe of performance both in life and of course in sport itself, really laid the foundations of so much of the methodology that we have today. Well, currently Sami is the CEO of Verta Health. As I mentioned, he was the founder of Trulia and of course is one of the best triathletes in the world. He's the epitome of the quantified self. In fact, he's a high performer across business, life, and sport. And I would add on a personal level, he's also annoyingly good looking. He's got a wonderful family. He's a great success in business and in sport. And as one does, he decided to row his boat from San Francisco to Hawaii unassisted. Of course, all part of the regular life that so many of us lead. Well, there must be something wrong with this bulletproof man, and hopefully today we can find chinks in his armour. But in all honesty, what I expect is for us to learn plenty from him. We're going to go deep into his career, his lens on performance in sport and life, and Sami even opens up with some fantastic advice on simple strategies that we can all adopt in our performance mindset. But before we dive in, let's talk about what's coming up in the next few weeks. Well, this episode really signals the jump into the nuts and bolts of performance. We're transitioning from some of the foundational topics that we went through over episode one and episode two, and now we're going to talk to Sami and start to explore performance at a deeper level. Next week, I'm going to expand on today's concepts and help guide you on mapping the endurance training piece of the performance puzzle. We're then going to go world class. We're going to gather up a whole bunch of the Purple Patch Pros for a roundtable on performance strategies. And I guarantee you in that episode, there's going to be some stories. In fact, that's the one that I'm sweating about because I cannot imagine surrounding myself with my professional athletes without, of course, expecting a little bit of abuse and a little bit of shaming. They just love to do that to me, I promise you. And then finally, we're going to be dovetailing off of that and exploring with Dr. Chris Winter, sleep and performance. So we've got some cracking episodes coming up. And before we dive into the interview with Sami this week, we have one more thing to do. We like the way he thinks, serious with the wings. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek. It's the Dixonary Word of the Week. 
Well, with our guest today, Sami Inkanen, what else could we choose as our word of the week? But sugar. Sami is on a quest to cure diabetes and educate the world on the overconsumption of sugar. And so we're going to talk about it as word of the week today. There is a reason that some people say sugar is the new smoking. We understand that sugar lights up similar receptors as several narcotics. Just look at the reaction of my five-year-old Baxter and it will paint a very clear picture for you of the reaction or the action of sugar when you consume it. I believe in the coming years that you're gonna see an ever-increasing swing of awareness of the perils of overconsumption of sugar, but it's really gonna take a paradigm shift to wrap up all three things that are going to actually influence actions of people. That is first, public opinion. That is actions on business. And it's also going to be probably some actions on government as well. But for the athlete, we have to ask, when do you need sugar? If you're a performance-driven athlete, is there a component that sugar actually has a positive role on your life? Well, the answer is yes. It really can. For some high-intensity training sessions, it's absolutely appropriate when you're adopting a performance mindset and you want to optimize the yield from that high-intensity challenging session, you should absolutely utilize sugar as a fuel source. Of course, in races, especially shorter to moderate, 10K, half marathon, marathon, Olympic distance triathlons, even Ironman 70.3 or the half Ironman distance, you will be appropriately utilizing sugar. And in your extended training, three plus hours of training you're in, then that's a great time that you might supplement and support performance in that workout that you're actually utilizing sugar. At the same time, when you think about consumption of sugar, be it through a very engineered sports product, don't be a sugar bug. Any session under an hour seldom needs calories. Use real food, protein, fat, and some carbohydrate on your longer workouts, and you can refuel following your workouts with real food. That's absolutely fine, even though you have marketing powers pushing you to buy special, magical, optimized, engineered food. There is no place generally in life for sugar. Short-term energy creating a crash, impaired insulin response, high likelihood that when your metabolic rate is low, so outside of exercise, the sugar that you consume in life is gonna be stored as fat. And so while the occasional dessert is fine, everything in moderation, including excess, although Sami might say, hey, it's better to avoid because it's so addictive. Don't pack your gills with sugar and sports beverages and don't fuel just because you have a performance mindset. Trust me, your energy profile and your dentist is gonna thank you. And that is why the word of the week is sugar. Now, let's get cracking on the main event, shall we? Good stuff, here we go. Right, the main event, guys. My discussion with Sami Inkanen. Sami is the founder and CEO of Verta Health, and Verta is an online specialty medical clinic that actually reverses type 2 diabetes safely and sustainably. He's also the co founder of Trulia, which he took from creation to going public a couple of years ago. And as a triathlete and budding 
Fitness enthusiast, he was the overall champion at Wildflower, Alcatraz, Hawaii 70.3. He was an age group world champion at the Ironman 70.3 distance and probably most famously known for going a couple of times under nine hours in the Hawaii Ironman World Championships, all on a diet of only 10 to 12 weekly hours. We have a fantastic discussion. I interrupted Sami's very, very busy day by heading down to the offices of Verta Health, barged my way into a conference room, and managed to snag him for an hour. So you're gonna hear a little bit of echoing as you come through this conversation, maybe even a few bodies walking around in the background as ultimately I just intersected myself into Verta Health. It's a fantastic discussion. I hope you enjoy, and without further ado, Sami Inkinen. Sami, thank you very much for joining us. Well, Matt, thank you so much for having me, and it's a great honor to be the first official guest on your podcast. You are the very first, and today we're going to talk about athletic and human performance. So what I really want to do is explore that intersection of, of sport and work-life performance. And before we dive in, because you've got such a, a fantastic story, you've got uh, an annoyingly nice story for, for, for everyone listening that I think will appreciate but what I'd like to do is go all the way back to begin and, and understand your background. You're obviously from Finland, but tell us a little bit, both in terms of, of education, but also your sporting background as you were sort of growing up before you came to the States. Yeah, well, once upon a time, there was a chicken farm. Um, so absolutely, I, I grew up in Finland and, you know, I grew up on a farm, so I was reasonably active. And I had to be reasonably active because I had to get to school. So I oftentimes, uh, believe it or not, cross-country skied or biked to school two, three miles already at the age of six or seven. Um, I did a fair amount of cross-country skiing growing up. And then I also competed in a sport called biathlon, which is cross-country skiing and shooting. Yeah. So that was really my background growing up. Um, and then so I did a fair amount of endurance sports before coming to America 2003, at which point I was already in my mid-twenties. And uh, the, so, so the, the structured sports growing up, you were, it was less team sports, it was more sort of stuff outside that was suitable. So biathlon, I think most people know, but it's, it's shooting and cross-country skiing essentially, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a fun sport growing up because you have this both mental and physical element that you're skiing as fast as you can, but the faster you ski, harder it is to shoot. And when you're a teenager, it's, I found that it was a fascinating sport to be part of. I did play a little bit soccer as well, um, but that was only a couple of years. Uh, I always gravitated more towards the grind of endurance sports for whatever crazy reason. Which lives on. So what, what was the decision to come to the U.S.? Was that first Stanford Business School? Is that why you, you originally came here? Timing-wise, yes. That was sort of step one. So I came to America 2003 to attend and complete, fortunately, my second grad school, which was the Stanford Business School. But what was really driving me was the desire to just get into America and uh, it's still difficult to get into U.S. legally. Uh, so my way of doing that was, was the business school. But really, I was excited to come to Silicon Valley and as an entrepreneur, build something here. And I, I thought, if I get to a school here, I should get a two-year visa. And sure enough, that's what happened. And that's how I came here. And is, is that met where you met Pete Flint? Yes. So my truly a co-founder, Pete Flint, uh, also from Europe, 
uh, also a physicist by training. Um, so he attended Stanford Business School at the same time, and we became friends. And we thought two immigrants from Europe, both with the physics background, uh, that perfectly qualifies us to take over the real estate industry in America. Exactly, and so and so out of Stanford and uh, and your relationship with Pete was um, was born Trulia and. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to dive into the performance side a little bit straight at that rather than just talking about uh, the journey at, at, at uh, Trulia. I think it's really interesting right at this point because you are at this time coming out of Stanford, you were active. You've always remained active and, and you came from obviously going through school and you're starting this company now. But while we're having the conversation now in 2018, I think there's been a, over the last few years, there's been a really big shift in the way that people globally view performance as, as a big umbrella. And I think, in, in my opinion, it's trans, transitioned from this isolated state. So how you perform at work, how you perform in your health, if you perform in health, but you understand what I mean, um, performance with family, etc., and there's a, to, to adopt a trendy phrase, there's been a real shift towards this sort of concept of the optimized self, if you want to call it that, where it's a really integrated approach. But to me, right when I met you, which I, I think was in 2009 that we met, you were already an adopter of this mindset. Um, so was that, when did you get interested at in that sort of interaction of health, sport work performance was that right from the start was it something that you just did without thinking about it or was it a sort of a, a decision that you made well uh, growing up on a farm and being pretty athletic i was always interested in uh, health wellness and sports performance however there was a pretty transformative experience that happened to me perhaps a year before we met um, that completely changed my view on what, what you call global health and global performance. And that was, I definitely had this mindset of the more you can do, the harder you can work and perhaps less you sleep, uh, better performer you are and more you can succeed and accomplish in your life. So what ended up happening to me, uh, I think it was 2008, so it was three years into building Trulia, was that I started getting sick quite a bit, just sort of flus and fevers and that sort of things. And then uh, I started forgetting things and words and words and names of my colleagues. And yes, English is my second language, but it's pretty embarrassing when you don't remember the word for banana, for example. And so what I realized was that I was definitely burning the candle from both ends. And although I was still you know, doing reasonably well in sports, um, it was kind of like train hitting you know, the wall 100 miles an hour. And I realized that you have to take care of sort of the platform and platform of health yourself in terms of sleep and nutrition and everything. Or otherwise, you really can't perform at work or sports. So that was kind of a wake-up moment for me around 2008, uh, which really has colored my view on what human performance is and how do you perform at, perform at the optimal level, whether it's office or the race course. So, so in many ways, it, 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 you know, you're, you're growing trulier and there was this, this transitional moment. Is that really when you started taking triathlons seriously? Yeah, it was 2000, yeah, it was 2008. Um, and 
I had this view that the more hours you train, the faster you will become. The more hours you work, the more effective you are. And, you know, it's pretty silly now for me to even think about that I had that kind of a mindset, which if you talk to Olympic gold medalists, it's not that the more hours you work out, the more likely you're going to win the gold. And if you think about being a CEO or founder of a company, you have to be creative. You have to be on top of your game. So pulling all-nighters every week, it's probably not going to make you creative and smart and thoughtful or even happy in, in front of your team. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, so shortly after that, you've you've become a... Uh, you're, you're, you're in, I think now your fourth year in Trulia when I, when I met you and it's, it's still very much at its sort of progressive growing stage, isn't it? It wasn't the empire that it became, if we're going to call it that. Um, but uh, taking, you know, the triathlon, it wasn't just an escape and I think that's important. It wasn't just, oh, I need something else. So right from the start, it was this sort of integrated mindset of, I'm going to do this. But at the same time, and do you think it's just your competitive nature that it wasn't just about staying healthy you still wanted to be a high-performing athlete at the same time yeah um yeah absolutely i think one driver of my excitement to to pursue uh triathlon was definitely that competitive nature oh it would be fun to compete again because i hadn't really done that for many many years Uh, and then i think secondly which has driven me in pretty much anything I do is this sort of a pursuit of excellence that you discover something that's interesting uh, and somehow rewarding and then you realize that it, there are unlimited ways in which you can improve and that journey of gradually trying to improve things uh, is just fascinating to me. So, And in many ways then the journey becomes way more important than the destination because that course, one yeah. race win or the second one or third one is just sort of icing on top of the cake, uh, but it's really this journey and the process of how do you put one brick on top of each other and uh, try to improve. And you know, just tangentially, that that word excellence—that's that's one of my favorite words. But I, it, that's a very different word than elite. So you know, excellence is is a very personal word in many ways because it's it go it crosses all levels. So in a sporting context, you're not just talking about people that are achieving world class performance. Excellence is really a personal quest to to be the best version of yourself, and that could be athletically, that could be in your health, it could be the best CEO or the best worker that you might be. And so uh, so that resonates with me anyway. Let, let's and while we're on the topic of me, let's let's talk about me. So meeting meeting Purple Patch, getting started uh, with me. I, I remember when we first sat down for a coaching discussion, and um, you know, typically when you sit down with an athlete, you say, "Tell me a little bit about yourself and, and give me any relevant information." I might have a chance to to look at your training program, and you you did the world's largest data dump onto me. And um, I think you gave me four or five years of data in which you tracked everything about you, uh, your sleep, your weight, your obviously your training uh, for several years. When did you first start to track information that was relevant to, to you? Um, that is a good question. I certainly have some scribbles and training logs from perhaps early 1990s but electronically um yeah it's from late 90s so now i have near 20 years of 
effectively daily data, a little bit of a diary and some numbers, what I've done and how I felt. Uh, so it's perhaps it's an obsession, but it's also a very interesting tool to reflect back and you start seeing patterns. When did you feel good? When did you perform well? When did you start getting sick? And you notice like, oh, it's pretty obvious that maybe I was training too much or not sleeping enough. So I found it actually a very useful tool, not just for sports performance, but also for just sort of happiness and health. And what were the components of that that you typically track at high level? Because there's there's subjective and objective yeah. data in there, isn't there? Yeah. Well, I, I do track the obvious things that most endurance athletes track, which is the, the time and the distance and what kind of workouts you had. But then I'd say the most important subjective ones for me are uh, two things. One, what is the mood that I have every morning that I wake up? And it's very simple too. It's number five is like, I'm ready to take the world. This is the most awesome day in my life. And then one is like, please let me stay in the bed. I don't want to leave. And it's, we can talk about that, why I think that's very effective. So that's one. And then I do a little bit a gratitude journal, just write down two or three things every day. Like, what is it that I'm grateful for? And it's amazing when you start smelling the roses. <laughs> you start smiling the shift of lanes, in every yeah. situation so those are two sort of examples of subjective things that I write down every day oh that's really really interesting and, and coming back to our, your journey at this time of, of Trulia and all of your work compi- uh, commitments what were the what were the biggest challenges would you say as you sort of we started on this journey of saying look we want to achieve pretty high performance at, at an amateur level in triathlon at the same time you're the COO of of truly a, a company that was in a high state of growth at that time what were the biggest challenges that you've you faced i'd say two things um one is the realization that stress is stress is stress which is a term that i've learned from you matt uh, which is to say that if you have a stressful day at work if you walk too late if you fly too much um, perhaps you have time zone changes you have to realize that that stress accumulates and it's no different from a hard workout. So you can't pile stress on top of stress on top of stress and then assume that you become uh, or gain fitness, for example. So that's one, because uh, I had many, many sources of physical and mental stress. And so I had to figure that out um, and fit it into my training plan and, and planning. So that was one. And then a two is particularly as it relates to triathlon stra- training is, is just logistics when you're traveling for work. And I had a few years that I was on the road for almost two years, two, 200 days a year. So just figuring out the swims and bikes. And if you're staying in a hotel, you can't do your hour and a half train or workout. You may need to figure something out in you know, 25 minutes on the station or bike. So I think those were the two uh, things to really pay attention to. And, and uh, you know, obviously already in this conversation, it should be coming across that that you love to um, have ownership, you love to tackle challenges, you're, you're always, uh, I would say, a very engaged actor, athlete or an active participant, as I like to say. So I, I just want to explore for a couple of minutes where you, you see the value of a coach globally. And it, it, in, in your context, obviously, I was your coach, but um, how do you see the value of that? What was the, what was the role that you saw a coach playing in your journey when it comes to either a coach that you may or may not have had in work and life or myself and your coach in triathlon? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, well, I'd say that the first is um, the consolidated 
truth that you can get from a coach. So I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, when WebMD, this website came up for it, people were like, oh, doctors are going to go out of business. Uh, and, you know, internet, there's like unlimited amount of trading information, for example. But usually what ends up happening when you spend an hour on WebMD, you realize that, oh, I have all these thousand symptoms. Now I need to call my doctor and ask what's really going on. <laughs> so for training, it's the same thing. If you Google, you know, Ironman training plan, you'll probably find hundreds, thousands of sources and options. So I think that the number one thing is that if you find someone who is a real expert, has been years figuring out what works, it's sort of the this voice of truth. Uh, and the more noise you have around, I think the more you need that. Otherwise, you're just sort of spinning your head around and you don't know what's the true north. So I think that's really one important piece. And then there's probably the second one is the more emotional aspect that uh, you don't really always see what's going on with yourself. So just having a little conversation of like, this is how I'm feeling. Am I unfit? Or am I training too much? Like that might be a simple question to ask, but if you're just in your own head, it's sometimes difficult to know like what's really going on. So you have that outside view and it's really helpful. I think it's very, very hard when you are operating at the sort of 1,000 foot daily lens where you are the the athlete executing to be able to raise up and see the full landscape. And, um, and uh, it, it's, I, I would in, endorse that. Well, you know, it obviously went well for you. Uh, you wouldn't be on the podcast if it didn't go well, but uh, it obviously went well. So Trulia went on and um, and uh, obviously went public, which was a, a fantastic achievement for you professionally. And then the excellence that you achieved in your sport. But I remember when we started a question that you you asked for me, where we, in fact, it was this was really the catalyst for how we set up a lot of our training with very busy people now. He said, I, I need to maximize my physical performance within the landscape of my life. And I, effectively, after you going through your exercises, which I effectively stole from you, um, how do we do this on a budget of 12 hours a week of training? That's what I have within context. So I don't have 16, I don't have 20, I have 12 hours a week on a regular basis. So through your lens, what were the key elements in you setting up your training, knowing that you had aspirations at Ironman performance, but you had at least within context of the big landscape of regular training, you had less hours. So what were the key elements for you when you sort of thought about setting up your training? Um, well, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, you only have so many hours a day, and then if you have other uh, responsibilities, you, you truly have a limitation uh, with the time. Um, perhaps, perhaps the biggest revelation for me in terms of training with limited time budget was this mind chain, it's a sort of a mind shift, which is for most endurance athletes, including myself when I started triathlon, I always had this idea of like, well, if I can just get a little bit more volume and a little bit more training, I'm going to become gradually better and better. So you need to ramp up the hours. But then I changed my mindset and said, hmm, if you go to gym and you lift weights, you have very, very different mindset. Uh, and the mindset is, okay, I lifted six times whatever amount of weight. And tomorrow, day after tomorrow, when I go into the gym again, 
can I lift more weights or more reps? It's very, very visible. Very few people apply that to endurance training. So that's what I, I started doing with, with your help, which was I only have this amount of hours. How can I make sure that after each workout or at least after each week, um, I can actually see progress and work out as hard as I can, but not too hard so that I can see progress. Uh, and it was super, super helpful for me. And then it was surprising to notice that you actually don't need that many hours and you can see your watts go up on the bike, your running pace increase, your sp swimming speed increases in, in the pool. Um, so that was an important part for me that I focused on the progress and the improvement as opposed to the process metrics purely, which is like, how many hours did I train this week? Yeah, which cannot be the barometer of success. What about going? What about your mindset going into races? There's a, I think there's a lot of things for athletes as well to look over the garden fence. So look next door, and um, there was no secret. We knew that you were on this training budget, and you could look at yourself and say that I'm improving. But was there any confidence erosion in yourself of your ability to perform relative to peers that you knew were doing 20 hours a week of training? Um. Or did it not affect I, you actually, at all? Actually, I, I never... In fact, once I noticed that I started performing, it became uh, almost a confidence-building thing. And I remember having these conversations with friends and acquaintances at, in Hawaii at the Kona uh, uh, Ironman World Championships where, you know, age group athletes share how they train 20 to 23, 24 hours a week just to get in there. And I, I just remember always laughing to myself like, that's nuts. I, you know, I maxed out at 12 hours a week. Um, so it became almost like a confidence building thing for me that I knew that I had like a secret <laughs> contrarian approach <laughs> and it's working very well. So I never really worried about what was happening uh, or how somebody else was, was preparing. To me, race events were less about uh, am I the first or the second or the third it was a stepping stone to learn if the work is paying off. And then one of the practices I've always used is after every single event, I force myself to sit down for at least 15 minutes to write down three things that I can improve. It's this kind of a growth mindset. And you know, if you race six times a year, that's 18 new ideas what you can improve. And if you race five years, that's 90 new ideas. So like my path to whatever performance I've achieved, it wasn't months you know 24 month quick jump it's five six seven eight years of tiny tiny steps uh, but when you do that you know say 90 ideas uh, suddenly it's starting to add up and, and and even on the that the tiny tiny steps and we're part of the dictionary as we call it is embrace the journey and that you know it resonates but the tiny steps people become so fixated on the weekly hours but if you actually accumulate in your case, your 12 hours for many, many months. And ultimately, you're getting ready for a single day event that's eight to nine hours in duration in, at your performance level. That's a lot of training hours to get ready for a single event. And that's sort of bringing it up again, where it's like that accumulation, that layering of training is the thing. And I would say for your empowerment, you're, um, you're safe in the knowledge that you're always showing up fit and fresh. And, and fitness is seldom the limiter. And, um, and I would say many people that are within the context of busy lives trying to ram 24 hours a week of training in 
have a high potential of showing up fit and fatigue, which is, which is very, very hard to ultimately perform on a single day. Um, and I think in that, that, I think there's a really key point to understand. And a lot was written about your sub-nine-hour performance in, uh, in Hawaii on that regime, 12 hours a week. And I think that the, the key point that comes out of it is not necessarily that to be your best 12 hours a week of training is optimal. It's what's the appropriate training dose within the context of your life. And so when I always reflect on your journey and I look at you and, and what you achieved, it's the key message is you would have failed if you had done 16 hours. At least we can presume that the results wouldn't have been good. And that's a really different thing because I, I, there was a, some kickback a, a, against sort of some of the things that were written about that, that topic to say, you know, they're saying less is more and, uh, and it's actually no, the key is finding the appropriate recipe within context of your, your life. But um, let's go down a level. Let's actually start to, to blend that approach to training with life. So I want to, I want to talk about management a little bit. How, how did you manage on a week to week basis? So you have your, your work commitments, you obviously have your life commitments, and then you have your training commitments. So how did you go about managing, planning and managing to make it all work? Yeah, um, I actually talk about this a lot in a work context with my team all the time. We say like, how can, how can you, Sami, do all these things? Uh, I, I think my two secrets, which really aren't secrets, but there's a lot of discipline around them. It's two things. One, uh, lots of plan, planning every Sunday. Uh, so I plan my workouts, work meetings, interviews, and pretty much everything very, very accurately to not quite to the minute always, but so that's one thing. So I, I spend at least an hour every Sunday doing nothing but planning how do I use my time? Because time to me is the most precious currency we all have and we all have about the same amount yep. in life. So that's one. Two is the discipline of saying no. In order to do what you want to do and what you have to do, you have to become very good at saying no. And what that means in practice is there's so many distractions, whether that's watching TV or catching up with a friend who really isn't a friend, who just wants something from you. Um, you have to learn to say no to, to a lot of things so that what you have left is what's meaningful for life, whether it's for your training, for your work, for your loved ones or something else. Uh, so those are the two things that I, I found to enable me to do pretty much anything I, I want to do. And then, of course, there's... After that, there's a lot of tactical things what you can do. And if we take one example from triathlon training is um, I became very good at eliminating what I call transaction costs. And in triathlon training, transaction cost is changing your gear and changing this and that. So I did a lot of one-hour workouts where I might do a 10-minute warm-up on a bike, 30-minute uh, interval set on a treadmill, and... In 60 seconds after that, I'm in a pool doing 10 minutes of technique. So <laughs> 60 minutes, it's one set, and I just got an amazing workout. In. That that was your uh, always your ability to um, be willing to think out of the box on what classical training is, uh, and, and maybe this has come out already. But 
when when you see you probably don't spend much time looking over the fence too too much at other athletes but when you have sort of really aspirational performance driven people what it, what would you sort of highlight and bubble the the two or three biggest mistakes that you see i have mine but what are the two or three biggest mistakes that you see so aspirational very ambitious individuals two or three biggest mistakes um yeah so i'd say one is not understanding what's the big stuff to sweat about and get the priorities wrong and so one example of this would be the importance of overall health like sleep and nutrition should not come at the expense of more training hours for example i think that's one very very important and then i think the ability not to prioritize prioritize the most important things that matter a lot of people are good at work 80 20 you just do the 20 percent delivers 80 percent but when you try to fit in the sports you can apply exactly the same thing there's so many things you can be worrying worrying about but if you focus on the 20 percent delivers 80 percent uh, you start getting amazing results. I don't know, those two just come to mind. Right we, we call that nailing the basics. So uh, <laughs> nailing the basics and don't worry about all the incremental fluff. We'll sort of close out the, the section of the podcast on, um, on our planning, our training, our coaching. I'll, I'll tell you a little story of where, where I really understood that you, that you knew me as a coach and you knew who I, who I was. And, uh, and that was... You might remember coming to the Arizona training camp. In fact, you were, uh, I think it was 2010, and uh, we had a new pro at that time, uh, Jesse Thomas, who we, we forced you to room with. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about Jesse later on, but uh, we went out on the very first bike ride and we'd been working with each other. And, um, uh, and we stopped for what we would call a natural break on the side of the road. And uh, all of the guys lined up on one side of the road and the female athletes popped into the bushes on the other side of the road to do our natural break. And I walked up next to you and you turned to me and you said, Matt, I do not want to play sword fights. <laughs> I said, now you know my intention. Now you know who I am as a coach. <laughs> but back to the serious business. Um, I, I want to do a, a, a couple of minutes on nutrition, actually, because I, you know, a part of your Ironman challenge was fueling the big chassis of yours, and, and especially in 90 degree heat in Hawaii, uh, there's a reason that, that I call you Sami the Bull, and um, I, I don't want to go into the nitty gritty of the solutions around your Ironman fueling habits, but what I am interested in is that, is that was that the catalyst of you starting to get really interested in, in sugar and the role of nutrition and, uh, and the way that the body is fueled and operates and its interaction with sugar? Um, well, the, the heat challenge in Hawaii was certainly a, a complex puzzle for me to try to solve because a larger athlete and someone who pushes a lot of power on the bike, you generate mm-hmm. proportionate amount of heat uh, and that's a performance limiting factor in Hawaii. That was an interesting puzzle for me to solve. However, what really got me interested in nutrition and eventually led me to sort of discover what sugar does to your body and health in general and generally how the Western uh, nutritional guidelines may not be quite right was the realization that I was actually pre-diabetic myself as a... Oh, I, did, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, actually, I didn't class know. Athlete, yeah. So my fasting glucose levels were com- constantly elevated. 
Um, and then, you know, I kind of went into the positive rabbit hole and started reading science and published evidence and realized that you can actually be insulin resistant even if you are very lean and you exercise, uh, exercise a lot. And then that has sort of become a big part of my life. Now I'm on a mission to try to help a lot of other people through my company, new company, Virta Health, as well as some uh, nonprofit work and awareness work. So that's basically what, what happened to me. And, and in many ways, and I'm assuming that that sort of adventure was the, was the, uh, the stimulus for the big rowing adventure. You rowed uh, with Meredith, your wife, uh, I think 45 days, is that her? 45 days, three hours, deck to deck from for California 45 to days and three hours. How disappointing you didn't break 45 days to get from San Francisco to Hawaii. And you did that on effectively no refined sugars. Yeah, so the, the, the thesis of the role was that um, we've been told that you really cannot exercise. In fact, you shouldn't even go and do a one-hour run without Gatorade or sports products and gels and sodas and so forth with the idea that muscles need a lot of sugar, your brain needs a lot of sugar. Uh, and we wanted to show the world, and particularly kids and um, younger folks, that that is not true. We wanted to show that you can exercise 16 or 18 hours a day. Um, in fact, about the same amount of uh, work as it takes to run two marathons a day, which we then ended up doing 45 days back to back to back to back to back, that you can do that without any sports products and for the most part, any kinds of carbohydrates. Um, so that's what we ended up doing. And we didn't only finish, but finished healthy. Uh, but we also broke the world record for the speed crossing from California to Hawaii. So that was really the thesis. And uh, now we're living in 2018. Pretty much everyone knows that sugar is not just somewhat harmful. It's really, really bad for you. And hopefully we've been tiny, tiny contributor to this awareness with, with that row and all the publicity that these recent studies and results have shown that you shouldn't be really eating much sugar at all. Absolutely. And and the actual event itself, 45 days, I mean, I can imagine the the emotional challenges uh, and the, the physical challenges. What, what were some of the biggest physical challenges? And, and, and assuming it might have been sort of hands and rowing and, and gripping the oars and things like that. But what, what, what did you find the biggest physical challenges? Um, it's, so we were warned before by people, crazy people who had done any kind of ocean rowing, that inflammation, your butt's going to get you, so you're going to lose the skin, you're going to lose the skin from your hands and all kinds of stuff. Actually, it was remarkable for us, and I don't know if it was the diet or if it was the training, or we just got lucky, but we had none of that. So when we finished a row and we had a physician who had seen other ocean rowers before kind of inspect us and go through and do lap work, she was like, you guys look like you just came from a one-hour run after 45 days of exercising, rowing 16, 18 hours a day. So we actually somehow were able to maintain this cycle of work hard but then recover sufficiently that you can do it day in uh, day out uh, but i'd say the the hardest thing for me was to avoid overuse injuries um, and particularly around shoulders and lower back so uh, fortunately i was able to do that but that was my biggest worry going in and ocean rowing is not like flat water rowing because it's 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 more like you're getting knocked out all the time with these big waves yeah so i think that that was a big challenge for for me but we were able to overcome that and you you know we, we spoke earlier a little bit about this as well the 
you adopted a, a slightly uh, less classic approach to actually approach breaking up the time. And, and one of the things that we won't dive into it too much now, but you really embrace sleep. So you actually blocked off times where you could really sleep rather than going sort of two on, two off, two on and always having micro sleeps. You really embrace sleep, which I think is potentially a really important component for that, for healing as well, yeah? Yeah, so uh, people, the crazy people who've done any ocean rowing in, in two or more person teams, the tra- traditional approach was to row two hours, one is rowing, the other one resting. Then you just switch that two on, two off for days in or months in, months out. And my hypothesis going in was, this is crazy. You need the deep sleep, deep sleep cycles for your body to repair and grow back and produce all the hormones that you need. Um, So I said, well, what if we try to row 16 to 18 hours nonstop, and then we stagger the rowing and sleep so that each of us, two of us, me and my wife, we could sleep at least six or seven hours every day. And uh, it ended up working out super, super well. And of course, given our bodies were so fat adapted, we weren't bonking during that 16 hour near nonstop row. But I, I sort of relearn again the power and the importance of the health platform. And big part of that health platform is, is sleep. And so if you don't get that after just two or three days, you know, your performance deteriorates dramatically so i think that was a little innovation that we also had for our role which allowed us to go long and go very fast your 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 best recovery tool and it's it's free at least uh, from a financial standpoint sleep but it, it it really hasn't been long from following that at least uh, in my relationship with you fast forward your passion has now become very very real verta health um, so for those that don't know, just give a, a sort of one or two minute background on, on Verda and what you guys uh, are looking to achieve and actually really are achieving. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, we are on a mission to reverse type 2 diabetes in 100 million people by 2025. And uh, why is that important? It's important and significant because today... 30 million people in America and 450 million globally who have type 2 diabetes that disease is managed. The current standard of care doesn't know that the disease can be reversed. Uh, So we are pumping tens of billions of dollars worth of drugs every year to people living with type 2 diabetes. So Verda is the first company that has a clinically proven treatment to actually reverse the disease safely and sustainably. And that's what we're now trying to do, scale it as fast as possible to save a lot of lives and save a lot of money. And my hope is that we will make Verda as easy to prescribe to patients to actually reverse their disease as it is to prescribe insulin today. Uh, and we're now open and operational in all 50 states in America and treating thousands of patients every day. So it's still early, but hoping to scale very fast. It's fantastic. It's a, it, it's a wonderful journey to be on. So to, to close, let's, let's go through... Um, Let's come back to the optimized self concept because I uh, I think that that holistic side of stuff and and as you now are a CEO and building a company uh, and you're back on Sporting Quest Triathlon Quests again we're going to go and have a crack at Nine Man in a couple of months once again but um, but I want to go back to sort of your mindset what would you say are the key benefits that you get from adopting the athletic mindset? When we, th- when we apply it purely to daily work. So 
you have this mindset, you embrace health and fitness for you at a pretty high level of sport, but how do you see that blossom into how you act, how you think, what your energy is like during the workday? What are the biggest benefits that you see? Yeah, this is a super important topic to me personally. I'm very, very, very passionate about it. And the term that I use with my team at Verda, it's like I talk about sustainable high performance. Sustainable high performance. And I say there's only one kind of performance you should be thinking about professional. It is sustainable and high performance because, for example, building a company or any professional career, it's not a one-day sprint or one-week sprint. You have to be able to operate at a very, very high level for years to have any kind of an impact. And the challenge that I see in a professional environment is the challenge that Olympic level athletes don't have. So if you go to an Olympic level athlete, they optimize every aspect of what they do in order to potentially win that gold medal. So they would never pull all-nighters right before a big workout or right before a big race. So they sort of optimize everything to actually get to that goal. But now you go to a professional environment and you look at sometimes what CEOs or just employees of companies are doing and they completely throw this uh, concept of how do I perform at the elite level out of window by doing things that appear like they are actually high performers. So a good example would be not eating well, not sleeping well, having a lot of stress. That is not the way to be creative happy in your team, in front of your team, inspiring, and to be able to perform in a sustainable way for years in, years out. So to me, you have to think about, as a professional, you have to think about how do I deliver a sustainable high performance and steal a page or two from the book of Olympic athletes and look at what they do, because your work is no different if you want to be creative, you want to work hard, and be able to do that for years in, years out. Couldn't agree best. So, so how do we do it? Uh, people that are saying, yeah, I'm, I'm inspired. Thank you. I want to get going. What, what, what are the two to three things to adopt? The key things, the, 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 what we might call keystone habits to, to, to pull from a, a certain book, The Power of Habit. But what are the first two or three things of someone that are looking to integrate an athletic mindset into this approach? I'll start from number one, which is define what performance means. And this is very, very important because if you take the sport example, defining performance is not how many hours did I train this week. The performance is how did my fitness improve, whether that's what so minutes, you know, how fast you can run or how fast you can. So define what performance means. And probably in a professional environment is how smart I am, how creative I am, how happy I'm in, my, in front of my team and that sort of things. So first you have to define what performance means. Unless you're packing peanuts, it probably is not how many hours I can work per week. Because anyone can work, you know, 100, what is it, 44 hours per, uh, 164 hours per, per week. Sure. Or 68. Um, so that would be one. Then second would be just on a practical level, in order to perform in a sustainable way, you'll probably have to optimize sleep, nutrition, and overall sources of stress first. Otherwise, you just cannot uh, perform well. So I'd say those are the two things. Be clear what performance means in a professional environment, if you are, particularly if you're a white-collar job. And then two is what are the, I guess you call them the foundations of 
the pillars of performance. The pillars of performance, and think about those. Uh, and then you can do all this, like, so how I, you know, what kind of email client do I use to be fast, and what kind mm -hmm. of meetings do I run? But that's sort of the icing on top of the cake. It's fantastic. All right, we have some quick fire questions. So these are the questions that we're going to ask every guest. And uh, reactionary gut, one sentence, maybe one word. Are you ready? Absolutely. We have ready to a, go. Uh, we have a uh, eight questions here. Number one: What's the biggest challenge for a time-staffed, high-performer faces? Saying no. What's your number one performance habit to help your daily energy in the workplace? Super easy to sleep. Training. Listen to music, focus on the task, or troubleshoot work problems? Uh, high intensity work is very easy. I immerse myself in the pain and try to feel and enjoy it. No music. Good man. What do you wish you had more of? Nothing. I'm super happy with what I have. Training. Fly solo or surround yourself with a crowd? Uh, for the most part, solo. It is for time start person. It is so much easier. Name one to two characteristics of an elite performer that you see across disciplines. Um, one, definitely growth mindset. So every step, every race is just an opportunity to learn as opposed to the end of itself. And then two, ability to truly enjoy the process of millions of steps and thousands of hours. Who has been your biggest mentor? Um, uh, it's going to be my now late grandmother and a very simple piece of advice. You build your reputation over decades, you destroy it in minutes think about it fantastic and the final one one tip for travel for travel um, don't compromise your pillars of performance so I'll say sleep again figure out how you can sleep while you travel fantastic Sami thank you very much I really appreciate it the journey so far um, as much it's uh, I think that for a coach you learn from every athlete and you learn from world-class athletes. And, and certainly for me, um, I learned from a world-class performer, both in business life and, uh, and sports. So thank you very much for spending time with us. It was tremendously fun and uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, we can go and have a sword fight. We will go and have a sword fight. Onward and upward. Cheers, mate. Take care. Well, that's it, guys. Thanks so much for listening. What a wonderfully informative and inspiring conversation with Sami Inkinen. We're actually going to do something a little special on this podcast. We're actually going to have a supporting blog post where it's going to enable you to do a little bit of a deep dive into how we frame out Sami's week of training, some of the key sessions that he does. So if you're interested, head across to Purple Patch Fitness. We'll place the link in the information on the podcast and you can follow along and learn a little bit more about Sami. If you want to follow Sami, Sami Inkinen, that's his Twitter handle, at S-A-M-I-I-N-K. I-N-E-N. You can also learn more about his epic adventure from San Francisco to Hawaii in his rowing boat at fatchancerow.org. You can chase him on Strava. He loads all his data there. And of course, Verta Health, vertahealth.com. 
exciting stuff coming up, but what a wonderful day today. Really appreciate Sami allowing me to interject into his busy, busy day and take an hour out to have a chat with me. Until next time, Matt Dixon signing off. Take care, guys. To check out a sample Sami week of training, visit purplepatchfitness.com. There, you can also learn more about our custom triathlon programming, our upcoming training camps taking place in Kona, San Francisco, and South Carolina, and you can also learn more about Matt's latest book, Fast Track Triathlete. Again, that's purplepatchfitness.com. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. We'd love it if you would subscribe, rate, review, and of course, share. Thanks.